He is a good father. He's faithful and just. He is true and righteous in all of his ways. And you can trust him with all of your hearts. You know, one of my favorite Christmas traditions is gathering the family together and watching the timeless classic, It's a Wonderful Life. I love this simple black and white film with such a simple storyline that tells the story of redemption. George Bailey, he's brought low because of a bank scandal. The stress of work affects his family life. He's on the brink of jumping off of a bridge, but he is saved by his guardian angel, Clarence, who helps him to realize what he already has. And I love the final scene of the movie where there is laughter and singing and shouting and cheering as friends and family gather together and they celebrate what's happened in George's life. And every year I am brought to the point of tears. And yes, I am a crier at most movies. And I'm brought to the point of tears when I see a man who experiences redemption. When I see a man who indeed went from emptiness to fullness. Well, seeing someone go from emptiness to fullness is what we see happening in the closing chapters of Ruth. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 3. As a faith family, we've been walking through the book of Ruth together in a sermon series entitled Sweet Providence. And it just, it, it seems so bittersweet to be coming to a close on this incredible book. Back in 2010, as Christy and I, we were headed to Ethiopia to pick up our sons. We had a layover in Rome. And so we thought, well, let's have a couple of days in Rome. And so for three days, we ran around like our hair was on fire. We wanted to see everything as much as we could, but we got to the end of the three days and we felt like we didn't really get to see as much as we wanted to. Well, that's kind of how I feel about the book of Ruth. There is just so much to see and you just want to relish in it and just savor the beautiful truths that are placed in front of you. And Lord willing, one day we as a church, we're going to come back to this book and, and walk slowly through this museum to see the beauty of the truths that God has given to us here in his word. Now, as a new believer, I remember reading Ruth for the first time. And when I came to the end of the book, I literally whispered out loud to myself, wow, there is stunning, breathtaking truth here in this book. When we see how God works through the worst of circumstances to bring forth spectacular beauty and glory. What we saw back in chapter one, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Israel. Elimelech moved his family with Naomi and their two sons, Malan and Kilian, to the land of Moab, 90 miles east on the other side of the Dead Sea. They go there for 10 years, and while they're there, Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow. Her two sons get married to Moabite women, and then both of her sons die. Terrible situation for Naomi. She prepares to return back to Bethlehem, and Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, leaves her and goes back to her family and goes back to her gods. But Ruth stays, and Ruth says, where you go, I will go. 
And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So as Naomi and Ruth make their way back to Bethlehem, Naomi returns back, and the people celebrate, it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. Then you get to chapter two, and what we see happening is, is now it's time for Ruth to go out to the wheat fields to gather scraps of food for her and and for Naomi, and God providentially puts her in the field to gather scraps of food in the land of a man named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Elimelech. Well, Boaz notices Ruth, and he commits to provide for her, to protect her and Naomi. And the text leads us to see the spark of love initiate between Boaz and Ruth. And the chapter concludes with Naomi telling her daughter-in-law, you need to stay close to this Boaz guy. Then in chapter 3, Naomi deems that it's time to take this relationship to the next level. Naomi asks her daughter-in-law three questions, verse 1. My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Like any good mother who wants to set up a good marriage for her child, Naomi is scheming up a marriage arrangement. And so here we see her saying, Ruth, honey, you need to go get gussied up because you're gonna go see this Boaz guy because it's time to get this relationship moving. Verse three, wash, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth does exactly as Naomi tells her to do. Boaz ate and drank and went to bed like any good farmer on top of his crop. And Ruth comes in quietly and she uncovers his feet and lays down. Boaz is startled to wake up to find a woman sleeping at his feet. And so he asks, verse 9, who are you? Well, she replies, I am Ruth, your servants. Take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. That phrase, take me under your wing, it's a double play on words here. She not only means cover me with your blanket, she's saying also cover me with your care. Verse nine, for you are a family redeemer. This is a marriage proposal. Ruth is asking Boaz to be her husband. Now this is kind of peculiar in our culture because we don't see a ring, we don't see flowers, we don't see a man with tears in his eyes on his knee quoting a poem. What we see here is a woman who comes and lays down at a man's feet. But Boaz, he's overwhelmed with this idea of marrying her. Now Ruth's intent here is not seduction, but it's a statement of humility and service and devotion. Boaz wakes up, sees her there, and he's like, I like this idea. Verse 10, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown me more kindness now than before. You see, not only did Ruth show kindness to Naomi by sticking by her side after the death of her husband and the death of her two sons, but now she's showing kindness to Boaz by sticking by his side. Now, from his perspective, she's a bachelorette. She's a free agent. She has, verse 10, the opportunity to pursue younger men. 
But instead, Ruth is making herself available to Boaz, a family redeemer. But there was a problem. There was a family redeemer closer than Boaz, verse 12, who had the right to redeem the land and to take her hand in marriage. But Boaz, he steps up and he leads. He, he plans to allow the other man the opportunity to redeem her. He's not gonna manipulate the process that God had written in his word, but Boaz does promise her, verse 13, if he doesn't wanna redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. What a moment. What a godly man. Boaz is obeying the word. He's obeying Deuteronomy 25. And he's showing us how to walk in obedience to the law of God. Boaz is trusting God to be the one who brings the two of them together. Now, single men, hear me on this. You need to be ready and willing to step up and lead when the opportunity comes. You trust God to ordain your steps. You trust his timing, but you don't drag your feet. You don't be passive. What we see here is Boaz, he's trusting the Lord, but he's also making a plan. You see, it's good to plan. It's good to prepare for God to move. And that's what Boaz is doing here, verse 13. He's gonna sort out this whole relationship in the morning. But in the meantime, he tells her, lie down. Why? Well, it's because he doesn't want her going out in the middle of the night. It's not safe. He wants to protect her. He wants to keep his eyes on her to make sure that nothing can happen to her. Now, before you read too deeply into this, this is not sexual innuendo. Four times in the book of Ruth, we see that Ruth and Boaz are praised for their noble character. So there's nothing shady happening here. Then right before dusk, he fills her shawl with six measures of barley for her and Naomi she gets home from the big dates. And you can imagine Naomi saying, I'm going to put on a, a, a pot of coffee and we're going to have a chat. I want to know what's happened. She says here in verse 16, what happened to my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the men had done for her. Meanwhile, that morning, verse 1, chapter 4, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. And Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi has returned from the territory of Moab. She is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. You see, Boaz here, he's fulfilling the role of the kinsman redeemer that we find in Deuteronomy 25. He's stepping up, he's taking the lead. The other man, who is nameless in chapter 4, states he wants to buy the land, which he has the right to do. But then in verse 5, it says, as if Boaz says, oh, yeah, there's just one more thing. Verse 5, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Uh-oh, this changes this other man's plans. 
Is he not only ready to take on the land, is he ready to take on a wife? Is he ready to take on Ruth? Notice what he says, verse six, the redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Bingo. This is now Boaz's opportunity to marry Ruth. Now the narrator chimes in here, verse seven, gives historical context for what's about to happen. And the narrator explains in verse seven why the other man takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz, stating that it was a cultural way of binding a legal matter concerning property or redemption. Boaz then turns to the elders in the crowd, gathered around, and he says, you're witnesses. I am buying the land and I am marrying Ruth. The elders, the people, they celebrate and they pray the Lord's blessing upon Boaz and his household. Then watch what happens, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Here in the text, we see a proposal, chapter three. We see marriage and we see a child, chapter four. But this story is about more than just harvesting. It's about more than just a wedding. It's more than just about a cute baby and a happy grandmother. This story is about a family redeemer who steps up to care for his family. The family redeemer is Boaz. But as we saw last week, the story is about the greater Boaz, the greater king of Israel, Jesus, our family redeemer. Now, Kenneth, isn't that theological gymnastics to come to that conclusion? I think the answer is no. Because when you Get to the New Testament, Jesus himself told us that the entire Old Testament was about himself. In Luke 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he comes upon two men, two of his disciples who are talking with one another. And they are blown away by what had just happened that weekend. They were discussing Jesus' death on the cross and the stories that were coming from everywhere, how he had been raised from the dead. Well, Jesus kind of walks up upon their conversation and listens and then he tells them this in Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. How would you like to be a part of that small group? Jesus meeting with these two men and he's starting with Moses and with all the prophets, he is pointing to himself. He's saying everything in the Old Testament is pointing to me. In fact, he goes on to say in Luke 24, in verse 44, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Indeed, when we come to the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, we must read it with the understanding that it is pointing us to Jesus. 
Now, don't miss this. We must never unhitch the Old Testament from the gospel because the Old Testament points us to Jesus the Messiah. And so as you and I, as we study the Old Testament, we have to look at it with the lenses of Christ, that it's pointing us to Jesus. And so as we study the book of Ruth or any of the other 39 Old Testament books, we read it in light of Christ. And in the book of Ruth, we see Jesus, he is the greater Boaz. He is our ultimate family redeemer who does everything necessary to redeem his bride, the church. You see, Jesus is our family redeemer. He's family because he took on flesh. He became like one of us. But he's also our redeemer because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He bought us back. You see, As we look at the text and we see Jesus, our greater Boaz, I want you to notice three things that Jesus does for you that you could never do for yourself. The first is this, Jesus provides you rest. He provides you rest. Chapter three opens and closes with rest. In verse one, Naomi starts off by pointing Ruth to Boaz as the one who will provide her rest. Verse one, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now the rest that Naomi is looking for her daughter-in-law, it's not finding sleep. Ultimately, it's finding security. It's the security of a husband. It's the security of a home. Now remember, in this culture, women are completely dependent upon a husband, A woman needs a man in order to survive in this culture. Women and children, they could not make it on their own without a husband and a father. So Naomi is seeking to find Ruth a husband who will care for her. So she sends Ruth to Boaz to get this ball rolling here. When when Boaz wakes up, she says, I am Ruth, your servant. You know what's interesting there? That word for servant is not the word that she uses earlier in the book in which she is a servant out in the fields. This word means maidservants. I'm no longer the one who's sweating out in the fields. I'm now a servant who exists to serve you. Here she is coming to Boaz saying, I am interested in marrying you. Will you marry me? Take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. The hem of a garment or of a shawl in that culture was often called the wings. So she's asking him to cover her physically with his blanket, but she's also asking metaphorically to cover her with his care. One of my favorite poems I get to quote at weddings that I officiate comes from St. Augustine. It says that a woman was made from the rib of a man, not from his head to be above him, not from his feet to be beneath him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected by him and close to his heart to be loved by him. That's what we see happening here. We see Ruth coming under the wings, coming under the care of Boaz. She's asking him to give her rest. This is a picture of how you and I come to Christ. We come as poor outsiders. We are Gentiles coming to a noble Jewish man, and we ask him for rest. 
Are you tired of running on the treadmill of dead religion? Come to Jesus and rest. Are you tired of just going through the motions? Come to Jesus and rest. Are you tired of playing the church game? Come to Jesus and rest. Are you tired of trying to earn God's favor? Come to Jesus and rest. You see, the gospel is God's call for you and I to stop working. And we rest in the finished work of Jesus for us. In which you say, I'm no longer trying to earn God's favor. I'm no longer trying to be a good person to try and measure up to God's perfection because I can't reach it. But indeed, I'm no longer trying to do it on my own. I'm resting in the work of Jesus for me. You see, Jesus did everything necessary to save you through his perfect sinless life, through his substitutionary death, and through his victorious resurrection. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So come to Jesus and rest in his finished work for you. The second thing that Jesus does for you is that Jesus is able and willing to redeem. When Ruth came to Boaz, she was hoping that he would be the one who would redeem her. And he responds, yes, I am, I am willing to redeem you. But there's a legal complication. Chapter 3, verse 12, there is a redeemer closer than I am. Now, the other relative, he has first dibs on the land and first dibs on Naomi and Ruth before Boaz. So the plan was, let's wait till morning. Let's get this situation settled. So in chapter four, Boaz trusted God. He kept the law of God and he gathered the town elders and he stepped up to redeem. You see, Boaz was the only one who was willing and able to redeem. Hear me today. God has no obligation to redeem you. He is perfectly just and right to condemn you and I for our transgressions. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus is the only one who was willing and able to redeem you, and he did so with joy by going to the cross. Jesus gladly paid the price as your redeemer because he loves you. Not the well-behaved you, not the I have to appear like I have it all together. It's just you that he loves. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that no matter what you've done, no matter how dark your past, no matter how selfish you are, Jesus still loves you and he goes to the cross for you. He stands ready to redeem. He is both willing and able to redeem any who humble themselves, turn from their sin, and trust in him by faith. Thirdly, I want you to see Jesus promises a better future. At the End of chapter one, Naomi, she has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She was a poor old woman who renamed herself bitter. But at the end of chapter four, she has Boaz who protects her and provides for her. She has Ruth who loves her. And she has Obed resting, a grandson laying in her lap. You see, only God can take someone from bitter to blessed. 
And that's what he does by his grace. The women who once were consoling Naomi for her loss, they're now celebrating with her because of her blessing. Today, you may be like Naomi. You're in a circumstance that has made you bitter. You can't see what God is doing or why he is doing it. Yet hear me today, God is moving you towards a better future. He has provided you a redeemer, one who is able to restore your life. He is faithful. He nourishes you by his loving kindness, and he is working out his plan for your life. That's what he's doing here in the life of Naomi. This baby boy, verse 16, laying in her lap, would one day become the father of Jesse. Jesse would then have eight sons. The youngest would be a shepherd boy out in the fields, and he would become Israel's greatest king. And his name, verse 22, is David. Royalty was laying on the lap of Naomi, and she didn't even know it. Whatever you're facing today, don't get bitter. Trust the one who promises you a better future. God is up to good in your life, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of your struggle right now. God is up to good, and he is preparing for you a future that is far greater than anything that we could ever understand or compare to this world. So what are we to do, Kenneth? It's the impact point. Rest in Jesus's redemptive work for you. God has redeemed you, not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the greater Boaz, the king of kings who sits on David's throne forever, loves you so much that he gave his life for your sin. He gave it all and he paid it all at the cross. And what, we've, what began with death, it now ends in new life. What began with emptiness in chapter one is now ending with fullness in chapter four. All Naomi saw at the beginning was emptiness as she approached Bethlehem. But when we get to chapter four, we see that God would bring forth a baby, verse 14, who would give her a future. God would bring forth a baby whose name would be famous in Israel. But God would bring forth a baby, verse 15, who will renew her life. But God would bring forth a baby who would sustain you in your old age. But God would bring forth a baby who loves you. But God would bring forth a baby, verse 15, who is better to you than seven sons. Today, hear me on this. If you are experiencing emptiness, if you are in struggle, if you are in trial, if you feel fear and afraid and anxious and you're not sure if you can take another day, then look towards Bethlehem where God brought forth a baby who gives you a future. His name is famous in all of Israel. He renews your life. He sustains you in your old age. He loves you and he is better to you than seven sons. And his name is Jesus. Whatever emptiness you feel today, know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, one day there will be fullness. Indeed, when you trust in Christ, it truly is a wonderful life. 
and it's ours forever because of Jesus. Thank you.